You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning and welcome to America's Web Radio. And it's time for a veteran's story. But before we start the show, we'd like to take out just a moment of silence to uh, remember those that have given the ultimate sacrifice and thank those that have raised their hand and could have given the ultimate sacrifice. But uh, this is a dedication to my friend, J. Roy Ritchie, that died of uh, complications from Agent Orange. So we'll be back in just a moment. Thank you, and uh, amen. And now let's uh, reach out to our host for A Veteran's Story, and he's got a very nice-sounding young lady on today that uh, he'll be interviewing. So with that being said, Pete, it's all yours. Well, thank you, David. Uh, Good morning, America. This is Pete Mecca, your host for A Veteran's Story on AmericasWebRadio.com. My very special guest today is Sue Verhoff. Sue is Director of Oral History and Genealogy at the Atlanta History Center, where she has worked since 2008. She manages the center's oral history initiatives, including the Veterans History Project, a collection of over 800 oral history interviews with veterans from World War II through the Global War on Terror. She is the curator of more than fell living the Vietnam War, an exhibition of oral histories, photographs, documents, and artifacts from Vietnam veterans and the civilians who served in their support. The exhibition was on display at the Atlanta History Center uh, in 2017 through 2018 and is now available online. Sue creates and presents regularly scheduled genealogy workshops and programs and provides archives orientation tours for public school and university students and their faculties. In 2015, this young lady received from the National Academy of Television Arts and Scientists an Emmy for her contribution in the development of 36 weeks Sherman on the March, which aired on Georgia Public Broadcasting. She is a graduate of Brigham Young University and the University of West Georgia. Sue, welcome to the show, young lady. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Well, we've known each other for a long time, so I am just absolutely proud to have you today. (laughs) Uh, Let let the folks uh, know a little bit about you. Uh, Sue, where were you born and raised? Um, I was born in Michigan. My dad was a Air Force veteran, um, got out of the service, uh, shoot, I guess about 10 years after the end of World War II. Um, so born in Michigan, but moved to Southern California as a baby. Um, so I was raised in, I'm a Valley girl. Isn't that awful? Um, oh, my so <laughs> raised in the San Fernando Valley. Um, 
yeah, uh, moved to the Palm Springs area when I was in high school. Uh, my dad had grown up in Palm Springs, um, so he wanted to kind of move back home, and uh, that's where I attended high school um, and attended college at, uh, at BYU, uh, was able to um, live overseas for a little bit. I went on semester abroad in 1975, which was great, lived in London for about six months. Um, yeah, and then met my husband there in the desert, and we got married in 1977, um, finished up our degrees at BYU. We both graduated at the same time in December of 1980, and uh, he immediately took off. I was uh, nine months pregnant with my second child at the time, and he immediately took off for Pensacola for Aviation Officer Candidate School. Um, when he finished AOCS, he served for 11 years in the United States Navy. We spent most of those years in Rota, Spain, which was awesome, and uh, came back here to the United States. He found a, a job here in Georgia. We had friends that were living here that we'd known in Spain. And um, I went back to school, got a teaching certificate, and uh, he did the same. Um, so we taught middle school. Um, I taught middle school for about six years. I'm a recovering middle school teacher. Um, I like to tell people that you can't scare me. I'm not only a Navy wife, but I've taught school before, so you can't scare me. Um, so, yeah, that's about it. Okay. Uh, now, your husband was in Navy intelligence, right? Yes. Okay. And I yes, was in he was, uh, Air Force intelligence, which means we could both have a very boring conversation. He was fond of saying that Navy intelligence was an oxymoron and that the United States Navy was 300 years of tradition unhampered by progress. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. What, uh, what drew you to uh, Brigham Young University? I'm sorry? Uh, Say again? You went to a BYU. Uh, why I did. Why did you choose BYU? Um, I, that is just where I wanted to go. It was uh, really the only school that I looked at when I graduated from high school. Um, really? I got a, a degree in international relations, and that in a quarter will uh, get you a cup of coffee. <laughs> um, it was—I mean—it was a good education. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I had thought maybe about law school early on, which was, you know, ridiculous. I'd make a, a, a stunningly terrible lawyer. Um, but it was, you know, it was a good education, and we both enjoyed it up there. Um, he started out in school in Arizona. We lived in Arizona briefly. Um, between the two of us, we used to say we could open our own town because we've lived in so many places and have had so many different yeah. jobs. Um, but, yeah, it was a good liberal arts education. Um, I minored in Spanish. I, I, I do speak Spanish, which was helpful when we lived in Spain. Um, so, yeah. Okay, uh Tell me about your journey to become the director of the oral history and genealogy at the Atlanta History Center. So when I was teaching school, I taught in Henry County. I taught um, uh, middle grades, middle school social studies and language arts down in Henry County at uh, Stockbridge Middle School. Um, uh, about three weeks after I got my first job, my husband passed away very suddenly, which was oh. a shock on multiple levels. Um, I still had one child living at home at the time, and um, so I, it, it took the wind out of my sails, to be honest. Um, had he survived, I might maybe still be teaching, although I'm very grateful to be where I am and doing what I'm doing right now. 
Um, but anyway, I kind of realized that without his support, teaching is the hardest thing I've ever done. I'd like to tell people that. I, I worked three jobs seven days a week when he was doing his student teaching, and I tell people I didn't work as hard then as I worked when I was uh, had my own classroom. Um, our teachers wow. are do amazing. Yes, that's absolutely the truth. Um, they do amazing work. It's a it's an all in kind of career. It requires an incredible amount of energy, and um, I loved it. I loved the kids. I loved my administration. I had the most amazing administrators at Stockbridge Middle School, um, with whom I'm still in contact. They were incredible people, and did so much for me. Um, but I kind of realized that I I just didn't have the energy to to make it a career. So I was lucky in that over the course of my time in teaching, um, I was invited to participate in a national teaching grant. It was a Teaching American History grant um, that enabled teachers to learn more about using primary sources in the classroom and how to, how to do that and how to engage your students in um, evaluating sources and analyzing sources and making sure that they get the whole story. And part of that was um, held up here at the Atlanta History Center. I didn't know anything about the Atlanta History Center at the time. And uh, came here, attended some programs, got to know the staff here um, over the course of that grant period and was just really impressed. Um, so when I left teaching, I left teaching in 2006, went back to school to get my master's degree um, because I realized that I needed to, to kind of have an exit strategy from the classroom. So I uh, went to the University of West Georgia to get my master's in history, and the University of West Georgia also partners with the Atlanta History Center to provide a museum studies certificate um, for their students. So we did a lot of things up here at the History Center, learned about museum administration and museum education and um, exhibitions and programming and things like that. So I was just really impressed with the History Center and with their staff. And um, not long after I completed, um, actually I hadn't quite completed, I was nearly completed, uh, nearly finished with the master's degree, when a job came open up here and uh, one of the staff members contacted me and said, you need to apply for this. Um, so I did and uh, galactically failed my interview, my boss would tell you, I made a total idiot of myself in my job interview, um, but was very fortunate that they hired me anyway in spite of that. Um, so I started out here in 2008 as reference manager, which means I worked in the library reading room um, helping patrons use our materials um, to do their research. And um, for whatever reason, I just kind of got lucky. I had colleagues that moved on to other things, and when they moved on to other things, I kind of rolled into their position. So I was reference manager for a while, and then I was an archivist, and then I was senior archivist. And um, then I kind of discovered the Veterans History Project here. It was a project that, um, and we can talk more about this later, I guess, but it was a project that had started a number of years ago, back in 1995. And various staff members had been responsible for it over the years, but it was... Um, it was currently without a staff member's oversight, and because of my really passionate history and military history and the fact that I was a Navy wife, I'm an Air Force daughter and an Army granddaughter, um, I've always loved military history, and I was just fascinated with this collection, and so um, kind of took it over back in, I'd say, around 2012, and um, the rest is, is history. It's, it's been an amazing ride. Um, 
uh, the History Center decided that oral histories was a, an important place that they wanted to move forward with and progress with. Um, so I became director of oral history and genealogy along about that time and have been doing that ever since. And the Veterans History Project has been, um, it's, it's the greatest. I, I Don't tell anybody, but man, I do this for free. It, it's been <laughs> the most fun. It really has. It's been an honor. It's been a privilege. I've learned so much. Um, there just isn't anything better, in my humble opinion, than collecting, preserving, and making available to the public um, the stories of our veterans. Okay, now we're going to get to your the Veterans History Center project in just a minute. We're going to our first break, folks. Please stay with us. This is a great interview. We'll be right back in a couple minutes. Stand by. Hi, this is Rocky Blair, former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. As a board member, I'd like to talk to you about Warriors to Citizen, a nonprofit organization that helps American heroes, soldiers, police, fire, EMT, and their families recover from the psychological harm caused by career-induced stress. Over the last 20 years, broken relationships have been a major causal factor for the highest document divorce rate and resulting suicides in this population. This program, from Warriors to Citizen, is delivered free to families by professionals, all whom served in uniform and understand the needs to be addressed. I ask for your support. So please, go to our website, warriorstocitizen.org, and find out how you can help, either by making a donation or sharing this information with an American hero that you may know. And thank you. Hello, my name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you are a Georgia veteran, then the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived here 10 years, or you were raised your right hand and joined the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www.gmbhof.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Thank you so much. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, folks, welcome back. I'm with Sue Verhoff, the Director of Oral History and Genealogy at the Atlanta History Center. Uh, Sue, I'm, go- I'm the quarterback. I'm going to sort of laggle the football to you, and I want you to run with a story about the Veterans History Project at the Atlanta History Center. Okay. So we've been collecting veterans' oral histories since about 1995. Um, And I think the – I wasn't here, of course, at that point, but I think the motivation for doing that um, was the – let's see, in 95 would have been – what would that be, the 50th anniversary of the end of World War II? Um, the History Center wanted to do an exhibition about World War II in Georgia, and there was a realization, of course, that our World War II veterans were, were aging. We wanted to um, collect those stories, and so that was kind of the focus, I think, in the very early days of the project, was to make sure that we were collecting the stories of our World War II veterans. Um, that exhibition did take place. I believe it opened in '96 or it might have been 2000, not sure about that, but um, that was called V for Victory, Georgia in World War II, and it focused on not only World War II veterans, but on civilians, um, 
who worked in and lived in Atlanta during World War II and kind of what that experience was like. So that was kind of the nucleus of the collection. And then in 2000, the Library of Congress uh, was voted funding by Congress for the Library of Congress Veterans History Project. Um, there was a realization again, I think that was about the time that the movie Saving Private Ryan came out, and there mm-hmm. was a realization that, that, you know, we were beginning to lose our World War II veterans, and then it was, again, important to collect their stories. So the Library of Congress, of course, can't do that for the entire country. They, they can preserve those accounts, but they can't go do it, do the work. So they went out across the country and looked for partners. Um, historical societies and universities and, uh, organizations and groups that would be willing to do the interviewing and then share their content with the Library of Congress. And the Atlanta History Center was a founding partner, so we got in on the ground floor of the nationwide Library of Congress um, Veterans History Project in 2000 and continued to collect. Um, In those early days, we were doing, oh my gosh, dozens and dozens and dozens of interviews every year. It was a a fast-paced effort. Um, so that was in 2000, and then over the years, as the demographics have kind of changed a little bit, as we're as we, you know we're, we're now we're kind of starting to lose our our Vietnam War veterans, tragically, and so um, I think the focus has shifted just a little bit. It's not a different focus really. It's just that we tend to find that more Vietnam veterans are ready to tell their stories, and so um, like I said, we've been collecting since 1995. Um, but we collect things now that the Library of Congress that don't meet the Library of Congress's criteria. For example, in the early days of the Library of Congress Veterans History Project, they would interview, they would take the interviews of war industry workers, uh, Rosie the Riveter, you know, women that worked in the war industries during World War II. They were interested in USO workers and Red Cross workers. Um, but their, their collecting focus has changed. Uh, they will only accept interviews of veterans who served in the United States military. Um, so they're no longer yeah. taking those other kinds of interviews. They just can't. Uh, you know, the numbers are, are staggering. You know, they're looking at oh. hundreds of thousands of interviews across the country. Yeah. Um, but we do want those. So that it's kind of nice. We partner with the Library of Congress, so with our veterans' permission, we share our content with them. But we collect much more broadly than the Library of Congress does. So we've got amazing interviews of women who, you know, worked in aircraft factories during World War II. Um, I was really blessed to interview the wife of a B-52 navigator who was shot down over Hanoi in 1972 and spent a few months in the Hanoi Hilton. And that was a fabulous interview to kind of get that perspective, you know, what was it like to see that car pull up in front of the house um, and and know what that meant. He was initially missing in action. Um, So it was great to sit down and talk with her about that kind of thing. Um, I've interviewed, we have a, I didn't do this interview, but we've got an interview I know of, I believe he's Cambodian, who worked with the CIA during Vietnam. You know, that's an interview that the Library of Congress wouldn't take because it doesn't meet their criteria, but it's certainly something that we want. Um, we've got a, a couple of, of uh, refugees from Vietnam, folks that left Vietnam after the fall of Saigon. Um, I've got a, I just interviewed not too long ago a man who participated, a Cuban man who participated in the Cuban Brigade 
and spent a year or two, I want to say, in a prison in Havana for his part um, in the Bay of Pigs invasion. So we've got amazing, amazing stuff in the collection. Um, and it's just grown exponentially. It's been wonderful. It's, it's, the collection has received some notice, which is great, because the more people that know about it, I hope, uh, the more veterans will be willing to share their interviews um, to expand the collection. So it's, it's been great. All right, let me ask you this. Why should veterans do an interview? Tell the folks why veterans should do an interview. Because everybody's got a story. And if you don't tell your story, who will? Um, and I speak feelingly on that because I've got a husband and a father and a grandfather who all served, who all did interesting and wonderful things in the military. Um, other people might not think they were interesting and wonderful, but I do. And I would give anything to see their faces and hear their voices talk about their military experience, what it meant to them, what that experience was like, and how it informed the rest of their life. But I can't do that. They're all gone now. They're all gone. So the only thing I can do is kind of piece together from photos and documents that they left behind. But I'm never going to get that story, and I'm never going to hear that story from them in their voice and see their faces while they're telling it. So we do our interviewing video. Uh, We do have some audio only in the collection that were collected early on, but all of our videos, all of our interviews are done in video, which I think is really important. There's nothing that matches seeing that face. You're right about that. You know, in my interviews and writings, I tell these veterans that I try to get their story. I don't have a story. I say, look, you made it out of boot camp. You have a story to tell. Yes. Uh, I've I've done cooks. Uh, I've done guys who are just clerks. Uh, I've done musicians who spent all their time in Japan uh, playing the flute. I don't, I don't care. If you made out of boot camp, you got a story, especially if you go overseas and see other cultures and everything. I, you know, fascinating interviews and fascinating stories. It takes four people behind the guy with the rifle to get him out in the field. And uh, um, 10 people behind the gas. And those people have stories, too. Um, I like your comment about the lady who, uh, her husband was shot down in North Vietnam. Uh, I believe that there are two other branches of service, and that is the home front and the very neglected merchant marines. They had the second highest casualty rate in World War II, but uh, very little is known about them. So let me ask you this question. If a, bre- a veteran never served in combat or never left the state, uh, he or she should still be interviewed, right? Absolutely. Um, in 800 interviews, I can't tell you how many times we've heard that refrain, I didn't do anything important. Okay, the implication is always my service isn't important. I didn't do anything important. Like you say, I didn't leave the country. You know, I never saw combat. Why do you want to talk to me? Nope. Every single interview. I have yet to sit in or conduct an interview where our jaws weren't on the floor at the end of it. Um, The most recent one that I can think of was a fellow who served during the Cold War. Um, He was in Germany, and he told me before he went into the interview, I didn't do anything. I don't know why you want this, because I didn't do anything. Well, it was a fascinating interview. He actually was 
as a lieutenant, a very young lieutenant, responsible for a troop train that was traveling from um, his duty station in Germany to Bremerhaven for these guys to go home. And that troop train was traveling on November 22nd, 1963. And he talks about finding out about the assassination of President Kennedy and telling the men on that train and their reactions. And there were several of them that wanted to stop the train, that wanted to turn the train around and go right. They were convinced the Soviets were going to come across the borders, and they wanted to go back and fight with their units. And those are things that we don't think about. Um, you know, I, I remember the fellow that talked about sitting in a bar in Korea, uh, with his wife, she came over to visit him while he was stationed in Korea, and they were sitting in a bar watching TV when they saw the Twin Towers fall. They thought it was a movie, you know. Those are things that we don't think about. They're fascinating yeah. stories. Everybody's got a story. They, they, do. they do. You have your own story, and it's a very interesting story. Uh, I don't know if I ever told you uh, about this, but I, I met a gentleman had a World War II hat on. It was a Navy veteran. And I said, I'd like to talk to you about that. No, I don't have a story to tell. I said, yes, you do. You were in World War II. I said, were you on a ship? Yeah, I was on a ship, but I don't have a story to tell. I wasn't nothing but a cook. I said, you have a story to tell. No, I don't have. I said, what ship were you on? He he said, the uh, Gambier Bay. I said, the Gambier Bay was sunk at the Battle of Let Take Go. He said, yeah, we went to the water, but I don't have a story to tell. There are so many out there, and you know this, Sue. I keep telling people, please, please tell your story. Uh, they, you know, a lot of them will say, "I don't want my family or my kids or my grandkids to know what I did or had to do." And I tell them, just let them know where you were, what unit you were with. They can get on the internet and find out just about everything you did. So you don't have to get to the blood and gore of it. Let me ask you this. How do veterans arrange to be interviewed uh, with you at the History Center? They just need to contact me. The easiest way, my last name is a little tough to spell. Um, my email address is just my first initial last name, so sverhoff at atlantahistorycenter.com. But what's even easier than that would probably be to send an email to Veterans History Project at atlantahistorycenter.com, and that will get me. And, Pete, if I can just interject here right quick, as a former teacher, can I just say how important this is? You know, I had uh, I had a, a single year when I was teaching to get from the Paleo-Indian period to the Clinton administration. And I'd have given anything to have had this collection when I was in the classroom. So, yes, your family, that's the most important. But, boy, for teachers and researchers and students, it's, it's critical. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and I've known you a lot of these years, but I didn't know you were such a history buff. My my major was history in college and political science. So oh, well we need to get together and talk. There you <laughs> and go. Much, and, and Native American Indian history. It was fascinating to me. Uh, oh, there you go. I keep, yeah, I keep saying if anybody's going to complain about anything these days, it should be the Native American Indians. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Well, that's that's great. Uh we are, are, are going to our next break soon. We'll be right back. Uh, so you can tell us what happens to the interview after it's finished, what you do with it, and uh, so the veterans know what will happen after that. Folks, we'll be right back. Please stay with us. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. 
Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, folks, we're back with Sue Verhoff, Director of Oral History and Genealogy at the Atlanta History Center. Sue, you were talking about um, how the veterans uh, can be interviewed there at the History Center. Once that's completed, what happens to the interview after it's finished? After we finish the interview, I come downstairs and I pop the memory card into my computer and save it on our servers where it's permanently and perpetually saved and backed up. I create uh, what we call an access copy, which is a smaller version, an MP4, and uh, happy to send that to the veteran, but we always send a DVD copy of the interview to the veteran with a thank you note and a couple passes to the History Center uh, to thank them for taking the time to do that. Um, before we leave the studio, if the veteran is willing, we ask them to sign release forms. There's one for the History Center and one for the Library of Congress. If they are willing to sign those forms, then their interview is accessioned into our collection and it's sent to the Library of Congress. We've had veterans that have wanted to wait a little bit to watch the full interview before it goes out, and that's fine, too. We always send out those release forms very early on in the process so that veterans have an opportunity to think very carefully about whether or not they're willing to share it. If they're willing to share it, it becomes a part of our collection, and it can be used for researchers. It can be used on the web. It can be used for exhibitions. Um, it can be used in a number of ways, and we have a lot of initiatives here on campus that focus on veterans. We're very lucky at the History Center that our CEO, Sheffield Hale, is extremely supportive and uh, thoughtful about veterans. Um, we, we do a lot here um, because of his the strength of his convictions about how important it is to honor our veterans. 
Um, so, yeah, it remains here as part of our collection. If the veteran has documents or photographs or artifacts that they'd like to donate, they can do that as well, and those become a permanent part of the collection. We understand, though, that some veterans aren't re- quite ready to give originals to us, and if that's the case, we can borrow a selection of their photos and oh. documents, take high-res scans of them, and then return the originals. Okay, yeah, that was my next question about photos or uniforms. I know you have a fairly large collection there. Uh, uh, Tell us about something unusual that you have in your collection there. Oh, I'm just thinking about some of the things we used for the exhibit. Um, We've got a, a obviously unarmed uh, Viet Cong grenade. Uh, hand grenade. Um, we've got, uh, not too long ago, I had a fellow come in who did an interview. He's a Korean War veteran, and he came back in and donated his um, Eisenhower jacket and his boots. Um, we've actually had folks donate things for deceased family members. Um, that, that was a real touching donation we had a couple of years ago. A man called in. He's um, He has no children. His brother was killed at what, 17, 18, I guess, in Vietnam, and he had his his brother's trunk with his uniforms, with letters back and forth to the girlfriend and the family. It was, it, I sat back there and cried, I'll be honest, while I went through it. Um, so we've got a, a wide variety of things. Um, we've got the flight jacket of a fellow who served in World War II in the China-Burma-India theater, a guy that flew the hump. Um, so uh, pretty much anything you can think of. Documents, DD-214s, photographs, film um, that was taken. I just digitized some gun camera footage uh, from a pilot from Vietnam, and that was fascinating. Um, oh, watching, Yeah, yeah, that was really cool. So all manner of things. Um, and of course, it has to go through our collections development committee, but if we're confident that we can store it and take care of it appropriately and preserve it, then we do what we can to, to make sure we take it. Well, that's interesting because I have received calls from individuals who had artifacts from their father or husband or whatever, and they don't know what to do with them. Um, even a Medal of Honor recipient, his kids didn't know what to do with his medals and everything. Yeah, yeah. And they were really arguing about it and, and ended up in a very nice display at uh, an American Legion. But uh, I, I just can't imagine. So let me ask you this. <clears throat> when you interview these, these veterans, uh, male and female, are there ever any family members there with them that, that either participate or just sit by them and listen? Occasionally, um, you know, we try to be as accommodating as we can, but to be honest, I kind of prefer giving them a pass and letting them um, tour the museum while we do the interview, and there's a couple of reasons for that. When you're doing oral history, there's a lot to be said for the dynamic that is created in the studio. And we can't quantify it, but we feel pretty strongly that having a veteran on the other side of the camera makes a difference. So all of our volunteer interviewers are veterans. Uh, Seven of the eight are combat veterans, and they're all Vietnam-era veterans. Um, And having a family member in there, just for the reasons you mentioned, you know, sometimes veterans are hesitant about their family hearing things. Ideally, they'll forget the cameras on, and they'll be 
honest and frank, and they'll share the things that, that they feel ready to share. But sometimes having someone in the room, and in fact, I kind of worry sometimes whether I'm changing the dynamic by being in the room, because I'm always there to run the camera. Whether I do the interview, whether I conduct it, or whether I don't, you know, I'm always there for the camera. We, I try to reassure them, you know, listen, I'm a Navy wife. I know what goes on in a long you know, Subic Bay. You, you know, you can't say anything that's going to that's going to shock me. <laughs> but I think it's better. We find it's just better if there isn't anyone in the studio with the veteran. Um, it, it, I think it creates a better, a safer place for them to share. Yeah. Usually, when I interview, I like one on one. But yeah. I have had interviews where I remember one a B seventeen pilot. Uh, his wife and his daughter were sitting in the same room listening to the interview, which I said, okay, that's fine. But he was talking about getting shot down over France during World War II. And his wife said, you never told me you got shot down. You know? And he said, he said, well, yeah, we got shot down when I bailed out. You know, the French and his daughter said, you had to bail out of the airplane? <laughs> so, it, it, some of these people, and he was telling his story for the first time. Uh, yeah. I have found, and maybe you have too, with these veterans, when they start talking about their service uh, uh, in the United States military, especially for the first time, it's very interesting how the conversation will develop and how much they really want to get off their chest and also how they feel when they finish the interview. Some of these guys... And their wives especially, they'll call me and say, thank you so much. He's, he's so changed now. Uh, did, you, did you find any of that uh, in your interviews? Yes. I was just thinking as you were speaking, we interviewed a World War II veteran at his home, and we do do that quite frequently for veterans who are not able to come to the History Center. But at the conclusion of his, the interview, his wife, who had been sitting at a different part of the room and had been listening, told us that she waited 80 years to hear that. Um, I'm not sure about the math on that. I'd have to think about that. But, you know, the implication being that she had waited a long time for him to be able to talk about the things that he experienced. And I'll tell you, as it, from a genealogy perspective, i got to put my genealogy hat on for just a minute. You know, for, for people like me and like many of us where those, those relatives have passed on and we don't have their accounts, you can get an amazing amount of information by listening to these interviews of someone who served in the same unit. I cataloged an interview not too long ago, and you know Ron Helmley um, cataloged his interview not too long ago, and he talked in detail about some of the men that were lost in his unit. And I thought, oh, my gosh, for their family members to be able to listen to how those men were valued. Um, I just did a, a, a Navy chaplain who served with the Marine Aviation Unit in Iraq, and he talked in detail about losing one of their men a week before they were to come home. And he talked about how that impacted the unit. And I thought for family members, how great it would be to know that these, when we've lost these folks, it, it, it doesn't just affect the family. It affects the men they served with, the men and women that they served with. So it, it's hugely important. I think it is, too. I, I've always said that uh, um, the, the brotherhood and sisterhood of the United States military is like no other. Uh, you can come home and join groups and, and uh, church groups and everything else, but you, people cannot relate to a veteran, especially when it's been in combat, and maybe have lost people they knew, saw people they knew expire, 
uh, like in the Air Force, we had friends that took off, and they just never came back. And it's it's a very emotional type thing. But but the the brotherhood and sisterhood is incredibly uh, uh, intact. Um, as you know, you can sit down, especially being a Navy wife, you can sit down with any veteran and converse with them. But the really, you know, a civilian that doesn't know about the military or the history of our country, they're not interested. And uh, I'm, I'm sure you have found that out, too. Yes, and the percentage uh, across the population of folks who have served or even who know people who have served has dropped dramatically. There just aren't the numbers. If you look at the statistics, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. I prepared those for a, a speech I gave last Veterans Day, but um, it, it's a very small percentage of folks in, in the overall population who have served. So you're right. And even me as a Navy, you know, I all these interviews that I sit in, I can't even imagine what you experienced, Pete, in Vietnam. You know, I can't. I can't, but hearing it from your lips and watching your facial expressions and your body language when you talk about it, that's as close as I'm going to get and as close as people who've never served are going to get to understanding what it's like, and that's why this is so important. There, there is, I cannot describe it, uh, about 70% of Vietnam veterans, uh, some have been in intense combat, said, would you do it again? They say, yeah, I'd do it again. Yes. And it was yes. that camaraderie, and it was the, the, the unity of it. Uh, you had a goal. You had a mission. You knew what you were there for. Uh, you didn't have to worry about being fired, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and they come home, and the things they do in their community are are staggering. You know, look what you're doing in sharing these stories. But, you know, I've talked to guys that were helo pilots in Vietnam who volunteer for local sheriff's departments to fly their helicopter. You know, it's the things that the, the USO work, you know, they come back and they volunteer. They give, they give, they give back to the community, and it's it's remarkable. Well, you have been at the Atlanta Vietnam Veterans Business Association many, many times. And you can see what that organization does, not just for Vietnam veterans, but in the community as a whole. Uh, yes. I have met very, very few veterans who will not help uh, with, with civic duties or especially with any kind of veteran-type function. Uh, like we say, it is a very, very tightly knit organization. And to become a member of it, all you have to do is sign the dotted line and sign your life away. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. All right, uh, Sue, we are going to our last break. Everybody, please stand by. Great, great interview, Sue. Thank you so much. Uh, we will be right back in about two minutes. Stay with us. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. 
Hello, my name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you are a Georgia veteran, then the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived here 10 years, or you were raised your right hand and joined the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www.gmbhof.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Thank you so much. Hi, this is Rocky Blair, former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. As a board member, I'd like to talk to you about Warriors to Citizen, a nonprofit organization that helps American heroes, soldiers, police, fire, EMT, and their families recover from the psychological harm caused by career-induced stress. Over the last 20 years, broken relationships have been a major causal factor for the highest document divorce rate and resulting suicides in this population. This program, from Warriors to Citizen, is delivered free to families by professionals, all whom served in uniform and understand the needs to be addressed. I ask for your support. So please, go to our website, warriorstocitizen.org, and find out how you can help, either by making a donation or sharing this information with an American hero that you may know. And thank you. This is America's Web Radio. Would you like to have a show, talk about your business, or express your opinion on America's Web Radio? Just email gm at americaswebradio.com and we'll get back to you. Thank you. Okay, folks, we're back at Sue Verhoff, the director of the Oil History Center. Uh, or history and genealogy at the Atlanta History Center. Uh, Sue, uh, you were talking about some of the interviews, and we were discussing some of our interviews. Uh, you and I have, have had some interesting interviews. Uh, tell me, uh, tell me about one of your most interesting interviews. Oh my gosh, do I have to pick one? <laughs> That's no, always you, tough. Well, I've got a. My next question was tell me about your funniest interview, but rock on. Funniest and most interesting, go ahead. Well, let's, that's good, because, you know, it's kind of, it's yeah, I've got a list as long as your arm of, of interview moments that were incredible. But the first one that always kind of pops to mind, and I think um, Joe Bruckner and Tony Hilliard would tell you this, too. They were with me at the time. We went down to Fort Benning and were very honored to be able to interview Michael Schlitz. Um, Michael served the United States Army in Iraq and had uh, a uh, IED go up underneath his Humvee. He was very, very badly burned. Um, That was one of the most compelling interviews I've ever been in on because of his attitude. I, I mean, his life was forever changed in that moment. And what he talks about in terms of the bond that he forged with with his guys um, the things they did on the battlefield um, to preserve his life, um, the the months and months that he spent in burn units and all of the things that he did. And he is another one who's still giving back. Um, he's heavily involved in Gary Sinise's uh, foundation, um, working with veterans. And that was an incredible interview um, to listen to his his outlook and his attitude about things. Um, I think about Jenny Dornhagen. Uh, she was an Army nurse in Vietnam, 
and uh, the experiences that she had, um, you know, being uh, being shelled and crawling underneath gurneys to suction patients, you know, on their hands and knees while, you know, things are going up around them. It, I just, the the bravery and the, the, the love, it's just, it's amazing. And, and the heartwarming things that these veterans do, too. Um, I think about that Navy chaplain whose interview I just cataloged a couple days ago. The, the boxes of toys and things that they received from the states and the work that they, that the Marines did there in Iraq to interact with the local communities, you know, to, to, to eat with the, the people and to play with the children. It was, it's just, it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. Tell me about your funniest interview. Oh, there have been a bunch of them. Um, the first one that always pops to mind is Albert McMahon. Um, Albert was a, a World War II veteran. He just recently passed away. He was such a fun man. We interviewed him a couple of times. And uh, he was in a B-17 in World War II. And he talked about his electrical suit that they wore, as you know, to stay warm. Um, and he mentioned it's an experience when his electrical, sh- electrical suit shorted out in his groin. And they were in combat actively shooting at things that were shooting at them, right? And he's on the intercom to the pilot saying, I'm on fire, I'm on fire. The pilot came back and said, shut up and keep shooting. So he shut up and kept shooting. <laughs> so, it, yeah, um, a fellow that I, whose interview I cataloged yesterday talked about, he was Navy, talked about being um, brought onto the deck of a carrier on a, a mail plane, right? So his probably one of the first and only times that he actually recovered, you know, in an airplane on a carrier, which those of you who are Navy know what that's like. Um, but he talks about the crew taking his bag off of this plane, and this is in the middle of flight ops now. They're launching aircraft actively off this carrier. When the guy took his bag off his plane and dropped it on the ground, it broke open, and all of his clothes went everywhere. So he's got his underwear, you know, flying in the air. hoping that it's not going to get sucked into one of the jet intakes, you know, right? So, you know, his his inauspicious beginning, this was his first day um, at his new duty station on the the, uh, Bonhomme Richard. So, yeah, it's, yeah, they're fantastic. Yeah. Uh, You've you've interviewed several females. Uh, Tell us a couple stories of the ladies you've interviewed. Um, we've interviewed a number of Red Cross workers and USO folks, and um, um, uh, I'm blanking. Hang on. It'll come to me. Yeah, war industry workers. But more recently, we've been so lucky to be able to interview female veterans. Um, I would say in the collection, we're shortest on Korean War veterans. For whatever reason, yeah. it's hard to get Korean War veterans to come talk. And we're light on, on women. We don't have nearly as many female stories as we'd like to have. But uh, we just interviewed two women a couple of months ago. One of them served in the United States Army, um, actually was at uh, West Point for a while, um, and was at West Point when they first admitted female cadets, which was an interesting story. Oh, and yeah. the other gal, sorry, go ahead. I, I was just saying, yeah, that would be interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it was cool. And then the other gal served in the Navy in the Middle East and talked about, you know, because we asked her. You always want to ask those kinds of questions. You know, what was it like serving in a, you know, this is, women are, the roles that women play in the military now are widely varied, and they do amazing work. But in the in the 
timeline of things, it's relatively new. And, you know, so what was it like serving, you know, in a, a traditionally male um, environment? And she talked a little bit about that. And, you know, there's always uh, some women have had very, very unpleasant and very negative experiences. Um, but she she didn't. Um, she talked about some things that could have gone wrong, but... Um, she had a certain attitude about her service and what she was going to do and what she was going to put up with and what she wasn't. And, uh, and those stories are, are so important, too. Um, so, yeah, we love that. It's difficult to get nurses to come talk. We'd like to have more nurses in the collection, but that's been difficult. Um, you know, the memories for, for women are every bit as complicated and problematic as, as the memories for men, and in many cases, even more so. More so, I, I have a couple nurses I might be able to get you in contact with and some donut dollies. Um, I, I know uh, a lot of people don't realize this, too, that a lot of our nurses who served in Vietnam uh, contacted Agent Orange, and a lot of them are suffering from Agent Orange. And a lot of folks ask me, well, how could they do that? They weren't out in the field. Well, when the wounded guys came into these mass units, the nurses usually cut off their uniforms, and sometimes the uniforms were soaked in Agent Orange. And yep. as a result, the nurses contacted Agent Orange. So, uh, yeah, there were no uh, front lines in Vietnam. Uh, everybody suffered there. Uh, yes. Okay, What you got any new projects in the works over there? Well, with the pandemic, as you can imagine, um, you know, it, it's been an interesting year, and one of the things that we've really been trying to do to um, pivot properly um, in terms of, I hate this expression, but for lack of a better expression, our new normal, uh, we're trying to get as much as we can online. So more than self, living the Vietnam War, that's available online. You can get in there and look at those at uh, clips from those interviews and see images of the artifacts and the photos and the documents that uh, that went into that exhibit. Um, we're also working hard to um, update our Veterans Park. Um, so our Veterans Park is a wonderful reflective space here at the History Center that is designed to honor our veterans. Um, and I could go on forever about the sacred soil ceremony that we had here, uh, the sacred soils that are underneath the seal from all of the battlefields, you know, from Revolutionary War forward. It's really a very cool place. But there are interpretive panels around the park that link to interviews, and those are a little bit outdated. And we're Where working is the to park? update those and provide more content that way so that uh, that people can access them uh, more easily. Um, and of course, we've got always have those anniversaries coming up. You know, this December will be the 80th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. Um, so we're always working on ways to share the content, uh, little documentary films that we can put together that highlight, you know, portions from the collection. Um, I'm still working to get the entire collection online. We have about 660 interviews that are available online right now, and they're searchable. You can go onto our website and search for Tonsonute Air Base or First Battle of Fallujah or Operation Market Garden, and you can find all the interviews that talk about that. Um, but I've got about 150 still to go, so I'm working really okay. hard um, to get those well, online. Well, I was going to ask you how the folks contact you, but let's run through a couple of things. How can the folks contact you? How uh, Give me the site, the, the website, and also the address of the Atlanta History Center and, and your hours okay. of operation. 
Absolutely. Atlanta History Center address is 130 West Paces Ferry, Atlanta, Georgia, 30305. All right, repeat that. The 130 West Paces Ferry, Atlanta, 30305. Okay. Our website is just atlantahistorycenter.com. Okay. And when you go to atlantahistorycenter.com, you can click on the menu tab and Learning and Research is where we are. So the Keenan Research Center is the name of the archives branch of the History Center. If you click on Keenan Research Center, that will get you to all of the different collections uh, that we have, including the Veterans History Project. Wow. All right, Sue, what what a fantastic thing that you're doing. Uh, God bless you. I know that you have four children, and I'm, I'm going to ask you about this because the folks are going to say, do what? You have a one daughter who has been in Kuwait for 10 years. Tell us about that. <laughs> well, she married a foreign boy. <laughs> she, she, she married a Welshman, a British man who was a civil engineer, is a civil engineer, and he started working in Kuwait 10 years ago on the roads, uh, creating interchanges and, and freeways. But he is currently working to build the, an additional runway at the Kuwait airport. Um, so they've been there for 10 years. My granddaughter, uh, her daughter, was born there um, six years ago. And I have not seen my daughter since the summer of 2019. And I think it was probably December of 2018 since I've seen my granddaughter. So, um, yeah. COVID stinks. I need to get back in the air. <laughs> it does. Everybody thinks it stinks. And you have 11 grandchildren, is that correct? Yes, sir, I do. Oh, my goodness gracious. Um, well, i tell you what, now you have one daughter in Canada, too, right? 30 yes. seconds, Pete. Okay, thank you, David. Uh, Sue, uh, we got 30 seconds left. What a fascinating interview. Thank you so much. I hope this interview stirs up some extra interest in the Atlanta History Center. You have a wonderful facility there, and I think any veteran or anyone interested in military history would do themselves justice if they would show up and say, hey, I heard Sue on the radio, and I want to see what you got here. So, Sue, (laughs) thank you so much, young lady. Great, great interview. Thank you for having me. Yes, ma'am. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.